over in the West Chapel for a kind of a different type of presentation, not really a sermon, but a more of a teaching time. I'm going to try to use PowerPoint, which in and of itself, that might be worth coming for <laughs> just to see that. Got a guy who's uh, the VCR in my office, which has been there for 12 years, still blinks 12 a.m., just like it did when I plugged it in those many years ago. Never figured out how to set the time there, Andy, but it's right twice, or I guess a.m., it's only right once, isn't it, a day? Anyway, but we are going to deal with the Da Vinci Code. The movie opens on May 19th. It will be a significant cultural event. I am not one to be bounced around by our culture, certainly, but there are some times that it screams so loud that it, it requires us to pause and examine it a little bit. The uh, book, The Da Vinci Code, according to the promo, has sold 40 million copies worldwide. That is, makes it a very significant book and... Um, the message of the Da Vinci Code is a, is a frontal assault, although it is a subtle frontal assault, upon all the foundations of Christianity. And so it, it requires a response, I think. And I've entitled this evening's time, Decoding Da Vinci. So if you will come, we will attempt to do that, and not just to point out the the manifold and, and dangerous errors that are promulgated in both the book and I'm sure will be in the movie as well, but to talk about how can we bridge from that to a gospel conversation because that's what our family members and co-workers and school chums and neighbors, many of whom are going to be talking about. And so we need to be able to have an intelligent response to it and bridge from it to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to come tonight and to see that. Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, page 1187, I believe it is, in the Pew Bible. In many ways, I told someone this week, I feel like I've been running the 100-yard dash in the sand at the beach. Not the stuff along the waterline, but the stuff further inland, you know, that's that's deep and hot <laughs> because uh, what was originally designed to be one sermon is now into its fourth. And uh, presumably, uh, spirit willing, we will finish today with this section of 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7. I've entitled it, Men of Reputation. And here, this is a very significant text. It's a significant text because it is the definitive text with regard to the qualifications for the elders of the church of Jesus Christ. This is where you go to understand what it means for a man to be qualified in his character and conduct to enable him to be an elder of the church. And there are so many churches that desperately need to spend a lot more time in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7 to and give it more serious consideration in their own elevation of men into leadership. But as we go through this together, we have said there are seven non-negotiable areas of examination that all elders must successfully undergo in order to be qualified for the high and holy calling of eldership. And we looked at them. They're there in your handout for you. We looked at, first, a man's fitness. 
And a man's fitness, we said, was measured with regard to his marriage. It was measured with regard to his temperance. It was measured with regard to his prudence. And it was measured with regard to his respectability. Beyond that, he must be qualified with regard to his faculty or his aptitude. He must be hospitable and able to teach, the text says. Third, he must be qualified with regard to his fellows. That is, his fellow believers. How does he conduct himself there? And it is that he must not be addicted to wine or pugnacious. That is, a brawler or a striker. But he must be gentle and uncontentious. And so we have three more. His finances, his family, and his fame or his reputation with those outside the church that will round out these seven non-negotiable areas. Let me read the text Get us going. It is a trustworthy statement, Paul says. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, and free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil." So we arrive here this morning, the end of verse 3, as Paul further clarifies and explains and expands on his statement actually in verse 2 where it says an elder then must be above reproach. That is the umbrella statement we've said. That's the blanket statement and being above reproach is defined for us here. We are not left in a sea of subjectivity to figure that out on our own. It is defined for us in that which follows. And so here, one other qualification is with regard to his finances, verse 3, the end of it, free from the love of money. Free from the love of money. This term, by the way, is used only one other place in the New Testament. It's used over in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. And what it means is not greedy, but generous. An elder must be a man who is not given to greed, but a man whose character is that of generosity. It is a man who the acquiring of earthly treasure does not dominate his life. It is not the goal and the direction of his life. It is not, it is contrary, in fact, to the bumper sticker that we've seen, right? The one who dies with the most toys wins. You've seen that. A man who would sport such a bumper sticker would automatically disqualify himself in the office of leadership in the church. It is the antithesis of that bumper sticker. In fact, the Apostle Paul is is quite clear to point out, and not just him, but Peter does as well, that greed is a manifest characteristic of a false teacher, not a true teacher. That greed inhabits the hearts of the false teachers. Titus, you can just go with me to this. If you'd like, I'll turn to the right over to Titus chapter 1. And the Apostle Paul talks about it there. Verse 11. 
He says an elder must be, or, or excuse me, that a false teacher, a rebellious man, verse 10, deceivers, must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 3, don't turn there, but Peter basically makes the same statement. That is that a false teacher, one of the ways to see or to ferret out a false teacher is within regard to greed. And beloved, there are many false teachers, by the way, that inhabit the television waves that, uh, that roll around this country. And you can turn it on and you can see many of them that are more interested in fleecing the flock than in shepherding the flock of Jesus Christ. And so greed, a desire to acquire material and earthly possessions, is out of character with a man who is called to eldership. But we also need to say that greed is not just the domain of the false teacher. I wish that were true. I wish that if a man were a true teacher of the, of the Word of God, then greed would no longer be a, a snare in his life, but it's just not true. Greed is something that we all must combat. Isn't that true? Greed inhabits all of our hearts to one degree or another, and it's something like a nagging canker that eats away at our soul. It is something we must combat. Our Lord Himself said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, that you cannot serve God and money. Not just that it is hard to serve God and money, but that you cannot serve God and money. It is impossible, God says, to serve both. You must make a decision. You will serve one or the other. You cannot serve both. The Lord also said in Luke 12, verse 15, that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. There are no trailer hitches on the back of funeral coaches, right? There are no pockets in a funeral shroud. You cannot take it with you. And so if your goal of your life is the accumulation of possessions, you will fall into the trap that Solomon warns of. And that is that money is like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. And the, Solomon says that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. Paul reminds his young disciple Timothy later on in this same book, chapter 6, verses 7 through 11. Don't turn there, but Paul says that you have brought nothing into the world and you cannot take anything out of it either. Contentment is a learned behavior. Contentment is a learned behavior and it comes by discipling the heart and mind to be satisfied with enough. And this is an area in a, in a man's life and the qualifications of elders that in the culture in which we live, beloved, I think is a huge issue. An absolutely huge issue. I am persuaded that materialism and the love of money is the besetting sin of this culture. All cultures, I think, have one area in which they greatly struggle, and I believe ours is the sin of materialism and greed. I think we are like fish in a fish tank. We are surrounded with water and we do not know we are wet. Greed so inhabits the very fiber of our being. It is something we must fight against. I know through the years, on more than one occasion, I've had someone come to me and say, how could a godly man like King David possibly have more than one wife? 
Didn't he know that was sin? Didn't he know that was wrong? And my answer to them frequently goes something like this. Each culture has its besetting sin. For them, it was the sin of polygamy. For you, it could very well be the sin of materialism. And in that David was unable to see the wrongness of his multiple wives, we are unable to see the wrongness of our own material thirst. We should be careful, beloved, before we cast stones, before we seek to pull specks from the eyes of the saints of old and check the log that might be in our own eye. The message of Scripture is clear. We are to be content with that which God provides. And contentment, beloved, is a measure of your faith in a sovereign God. That's why the issue is so huge. It is a measure of how, how much do you trust God? Are you satisfied with what God has provided for you in this time and place? How much do you trust Him? It is the antidote for the lack of contentment and thirst for more that inhabits so many of our hearts. If a man is characterized by generosity, he passes that part of the test. If a man is not characterized by generosity, he may not go forward in the process of elder. And that leads us to the fifth qualification in the text here. And that's with regard to a man's family, verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well, Paul says, keeping his children under control with all dignity. How are, is your performance at home, gentlemen? That's the question here. What is your performance like at home? You must be one, the apostle says here, who meets the above reproach text or test with regard to your home life. A man's family is a place of discipleship and it is a place where his leadership will show or will fail to show. When it talks about, by the way, here in the text, verse 4, manages his own household well, it's talking about his wife, his children, and his household help. There is a presumption and certainly a reality in the culture of the first century when a person had, a, had a, what would be equivalent of a middle class standing in our culture that they would have household help. And how he treats those household help would be a, would be a, a window into his heart and his character. Now, we don't have full-time live-in household help, at least nobody in this congregation that I'm aware of rises to that category, but I'm going to just tug on this a little bit, and it would, it would say that I would include this to how you treat your gardener, how you treat the maid in your maid service, or how you treat the babysitter who you hire. These also are measures and tests of your character. Now, the word here is significant that we look at, and we need to spend a little time unpacking this. The word manages, prohistemi, is the Greek word, prohistemi. And it is commonly translated administration or rule or direct or manage. In fact, in the New King James, the King James, it is translated rule, prohistemi. It is translated in the New American Standard and then in the NIV as manage. But I think these words have cultural baggage attached to them. Nero ruled Rome. Napoleon ruled France. Queen Victoria ruled 
England, but only God rules his church. And so the translation rule, I think, brings the wrong understanding to the word here. And I think the word manage doesn't do a whole lot better. Managers are what we hire in the business world, right? They are CEOs. They are those that are in charge of the organization. They are those that give the orders and the direction and tell people, go here, do this, and on and on and on. And so manage carries a lot of corporate baggage. So let me suggest to you a, an alternative translation. This, by the way, was brought to me a number of years ago by a Greek professor And I believe that he has really locked on to something significant for the church of Jesus Christ. The basic metaphor of the church is a family. Would you grant me that? The Bible talks about the family of God. And so the church is a family. Ephesians 2 talks about that. First Timothy right here, chapter 3, verse 15, right? Conduct himself in the household of God. And so the family metaphor is a metaphor for the church. And what the Apostle Paul says is that the way a man conducts himself within his family speaks volumes about how he will conduct himself within the family, the larger family of God. Now, this word translated here, manage, pro, histe, me, is a combination of a, a, a Greek preposition, pro, which means before, and the verb histe, me, which means to stand. It is to stand before, would be a very literal translation of this Greek Verb, and I think that that really helps. Look again at verse 4. He must be one who stands before his own household well. He must be one who stands before his own household well. That is, one who leads his household. One who stands before them to protect them. He is one who stands before them to represent them. He is one who stands before them to lead them. And so what the apostle is communicating here is the man's ability to guide and shepherd and disciple, protect, lead, first in his own home and then in the larger family of God. So what Paul says here is the one must be able to stand well before his own household. Notice he further qualifies it, keeping his children under control with all dignity, verse 4. Paul says that the behavior of a man's children either makes or breaks him as an elder. That is a heavy load, gentlemen, is it not? To know that those that are just beyond your control have such great influence over the future of your life. Oh, when they're young, you might think you have them on a tight leash, right? That you can make them do what you want, right? The rod of correction is quite powerful at a young age. And you can get outward conformity, but the apostle is saying that it's more than just the outward conformity, it's the inward issues of the heart. And so it is a serious thing, gentlemen, you who are serving alongside of us as elders, those of you who aspire to the leadership of elders, to know that your family is your children are a source of measurement for you. They can be a crown of of on your ministry, or they can be a chain around your leg. And so it depends how you handle yourself. We all know the examples of the Old Testament, right? You can rattle them off in your own minds of men of God who have done great things for God, whose children, right, have fallen. 
who have cast a shadow across their ministry by the failure to follow along in their father's footsteps. Indeed, if you have been reading through the scriptures with us, and we have been reading in Second Chronicles, right? And we've been reading of the kings of Judah. And how often do you read of the son not following after the footsteps of his godly father, yet undoing all that the father had done for the glory of God? It is a big issue. It is a big issue. Now, what is he talking about here when he says keeping his children under control with all dignity? He is talking about more than just simple obedience, more than that which can be accomplished through the use of the rod, as I say. It is when the child begins to grow into adulthood and through the teen years that these things begin to really show themselves. The word is hupotage used in the Greek here. And what it implies is submission. Submission. The idea that the will of the child must come into play. That the child must embrace the values of his father. That's the important thing. That their obedience that is is brought about in the young age by the use of corrective discipline will mature and flower into an obedient submissiveness of the will. When they're too big to turn over your knee anymore, they need to have embraced your values. That's what he's talking about. That there is a desire here, a willingness to conform and submit to their father's wishes and desires. And Paul uses a present tense participle here, keeping, see it, verse 4, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And I think what he is implying here is that the measurement is when the children are under your roof. When they are under your roof, that is the point of measurement. It is the period of time in which they've been entrusted to you as disciples, keeping his children under control with all dignity while they are in the home. Beloved, the scripture talks a lot about submissive obedience as a measure of godliness. Submission is a measure of godliness. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28, talking about Christ himself, he said, when all things are subjected to him, that is the Christ, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. The universe is to be subjected to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then he himself will submit himself to the Father. Submission is a test and a measurement of godliness. All throughout the scripture, wherever submission or obedience is talked about, it is a measure of godliness. It is a recognition that there is authority over you that has been placed there by God himself. And so when you submit to that authority, you have submitted to the God who established it. Must be one who stands well before his own household, keeping his children under control with all dignity. By the way, the all dignity here, I think, is talking about the father's dignity, not the child's. All the other tests here are measurements of the man's character, and so I believe this is too. It is how well do you keep your children under control? Do you do it in a dignified manner? You do it in a dignified manner. Your leadership of your home is to be characterized by dignity within your home. Not a heavy-handedness that leads to the exasperation of your children. Not by nitpicking them to death over every single little foible that they might have. 
but to done in such a way that you that you express and demonstrate the dignity of your leadership. It is in the microcosm of the family that a man's leadership role is worked out, fleshed out. Paul is talking about patriarchal leadership. I even hesitate to use that word. It's, it's almost become a curse word in our culture. Patriarchal, male fatherly leadership. That's what he's talking about here. And it is not the patriarchal leadership in the negative sense. It is in the good sense of the word. Where the patriarch of the home leads his home in the direction of godliness. The apostle, or excuse me, Jesus himself says in Luke 19 verse 17. He says, well done, good slave. You have been very faithful in little things. Be in authority over ten cities. When you are faithful in the little things, which is the leadership of your home, you are thus qualified to be in leadership over something far more significant, the household of God. Now, maybe there's a question arising in your mind at this point, and the question that I that may be there, or if it's not, I'm going to plant it and then hopefully answer it, takes you over to Titus chapter 1. So go ahead and turn there to verse 6. What about Titus 1, 6? For the apostle writes to him, If any man be above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Is Paul requiring an elder's children to be believers? Must they be believers in order for him to qualify as an elder? Well, that's a good question, and it's a question that, I, that is serious enough that we need to spend a little bit of time trying to answer it. First, notice, grammatically, he says, having children. Having children. Again, we have a, a present participle, and in in what's being communicated here grammatically to us is that there is children still under his control. It is children within the home is the point of measurement here. And it says that he's having children who believe, right? Having children who believe. This word pistos, this adjective that is, is translated here, uh, believe, could also be translated faithful and indeed is in these very same pastoral epistles. Just write these down and you can check them on your own. But 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, it is translated faithful. It is also translated in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and verse 2, as believers. So the same adjective can be translated as faithful and it can be translated as believers. So we don't get any help lexically in terms of what is being communicated here. We have to rely on the context to drive us in our correct understanding of what's going on here. <coughs> but having said that, I need to make an observation. In both contexts, that is over in, um, in 2 Timothy 2.2, and 1 Timothy 6.2, where it's translated faithful and believers, there is a presumption in both cases that you're talking to Christians. So there's an underlying presumption that you are talking to Christians. That Apostle Paul is addressing Christians. The faithfulness that he's talking about is a characteristic of Christian men. Right? You are to pass on the teaching to faithful Christian men. And so there can be all kinds of straw men arguments that can be built about, well, what if someone has believing children, but they're disobedient, and someone else has obedient children, but they're unbelieving? And, and the Apostle Paul would not have any part of those kinds of straw men arguments. 
Instead, he's trying to communicate something a little deeper, a little more profound. And so when you look here at Titus, notice where he says you're having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. He is modifying it here and he is talking about external behaviors. He's talking about external behaviors. And so he's he's defining what it means to be believing here. And he's saying that the believing children here cannot be in open rebellion against their father's leadership by their words or by their actions. They cannot be in that open rebellion. Furthermore, over in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, back here, he, if you turn back there with me and take a look at that, he's talking again about their outward behavior, right? They are under control with all dignity. With all dignity. So what is he communicating here? Is he talking about just a person, the, the inward spiritual nature of the child? I don't think he is. And the reason I don't think he is is because no one can know such things. No one can look inside the heart of a child and know whether they are truly believers or not. All we can do in the same way that we can evaluate a man is we can look externally at how they behave and that gives us a glimpse at what lies inside. But you cannot peer into the heart of a child. And so what he is talking about here, I believe, primarily is what is the behavioral characteristics of the children under a man's leadership? That's the measurement. Do his children reflect his leadership? Has he made disciples? Is he making disciples? Are they submissive? Are they obedient? Are they growing in their understanding of God and the gospel? The natural expectation is that a man will lead his family, his children, to faith in Christ. He will lead them to faith in Christ, and we will know that he is doing that by the way we see these children uh, behaving themselves in these external measures. Is a man a shepherd at home? Is he a shepherd at home? Notice again verse 5 in 1 Timothy 3. If he does not know how to manage his own household or stand well before his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? If he can't do it at home, how in the world is he going to do it in the church at large? If those that are most naturally prone to his influence, those who are, or who by nature are, are, are created by God to love their father and follow their father's influence, if they are not following his influence, how in the world is he going to lead strangers? That's the point. Now, let me bring a word of caution here. Because this is also a dangerous area. Children mature differently. Let me say that again. Children mature differently. God does not own a cookie cutter. He has not made us identical and he has not made your children identical either. And so we need to remember that Paul is not setting up here a standard of perfection. It is not a standard of perfection. It is rather a qualifying characteristic of what it means to be beyond reproach. Children mature differently. Those of you who have had a number of children have probably observed this. Some children are openly and outwardly compliant, right? Some children respond or at least appear to respond very easily to their father's leadership. 
All he has to do is look cross-eyed at one of them. They burst into tears and, you know, oh, I repent. I'll never do it again. And, you know, you think, well, I've got this parenting thing down. You know, all I got to do is drop the glasses a little and look and, boy, I put them right in line. And then you've got the other child who says, you know, they've got the battery on their shoulder, whatever it is, and they say, knock it off if you think you're big enough. And so we have those children that are more strong-willed, more prone to drop the gloves and see who's, you know, who's in charge here, right? They wake up in the morning and they say, today is a good day to die and a good day to take mom with me. And so we have them and we have the compliant children. But we should never confuse outward compliance with inward spiritual transformation. That is a serious, serious mistake. And if we go down that line we will create a beautiful pack of Pharisees. Those that look good on the outside and inside are full of dead man's bones and all kinds of corruption. We need to get as parents down to the heart of the matter, shepherding the heart of our children. And as believers, when we are looking at the children of elders, either those serving in that ministry or those who will presumably be serving in that ministry, we need to give wobble room with regard to their children. Wobble room. There are two ditches on either side of the road here. One is the ditch of severity, which says, geez, I can't believe that that's how an elder's kid behaves, right? My child would never do that. And the other ditch on the side of the road says, you know, I won't let my children play with the elder's kids because they're the ones who are always getting into trouble. So you don't want elder's kids always in trouble. You don't want elder's kids having to sit in the front row you know, in their little white shirts with their ties all in line like little wooden soldiers. And we need wobble room in this area. Not harshness, not laxity, but prayer. Prayer. Pray for the children of the elders. Those of you who serve as elders and those of you who are children of elders, you understand the heightened sense of accountability the heightened sense of accountability, the, the sense that you have that as you walk through life, there's always somebody watching you. Always somebody kind of peering over your shoulder, some of whom have score pads, and can they almost delight in being able to write down the latest transgression. We need to pray for the children of the elders. Believe me, beloved, Satan would like nothing more than to trip a man up in this area. He would like nothing more than to crush his ministry and to attack him through his children. A man must be one who stands well, verse 4, before his own household, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Parenthetical question, rhetorical question, verse 5, if a man does not know how to manage his own household or stand well before his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? I can remember years ago, it's a vivid memory that will never pass from me, I don't believe. And that is, as a young boy, the town I grew up in, they were having elections for selectmen. And such and such a person was running, and his, his campaign signs were everywhere around this little town that I grew up in. And I remember my father saying to my mother, when we were talking about who they were going to vote for, he said, I would never vote for that man. He said, take one look at his kids. If he can't manage his family better than that, how in the world is he going to be a selectman and take care of this town? It is a sense of wisdom that is not just, or it is God's wisdom, but it has flowed out to the world at large. People are watching and people understand. If you can't do it at home, you no way you're going to be able to do it in public. 
a man does not know how to stand well before his own household, verse 5, how will he take care of? How is, will, is it that he will look after? Look after the church of God. This verb, by the way, where it says take care of is a very intensive verb. It's used only one other place in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 10, verse 35, and it speaks there in the context of the concern and care that the Good Samaritan gave to the man who had fallen among robbers. It is that kind of care and concern for the church of God the Apostle Paul is talking about. If he can't stand well before those who presumably love him and are inclined to follow him, how in the world will he provide the kind of care that's necessary for the household of God? By the way, notice it also says if he does not know how, verse 5, do you see it? Fathering is a learned skill. It is a learned skill. I remember when our daughter came home from the hospital, I was 24 years old. When she came home, we turned her over and over, looking for the directions on the bottom of the box. And there were none. There were none. And so we, two, two young kids just out of college, had to learn how to raise children. We lived a long way from our parents, and it was, an, it was a learning experience. And, and it can be learned, gentlemen. It can be learned and it's never too late to start. There are many good books available and there's certainly the book. If you will give yourself to it, God will show you and teach you how to stand well before your own household. So a man must be qualified with regard to his finances. He must be qualified with regard to his family and he must be qualified with regard to his faith. Verse 6, and not a new convert. Not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Not a new convert. Etymologically, from the Greek word that is used here, we get the word neophyte. He must not be a neophyte. That is one who is newly planted. He cannot be newly planted. Not a new convert. Now, it's fascinating here, by the way, that, that Paul includes this qualification in 1 Timothy 3. And there is no parallel uh, statement over in Titus. There is no parallel statement about this in Titus with regard to whether a man is a new convert or not. And I suspect that the reason is has to do with the ages of the church is being written to. The church at Ephesus is over 10 years old by this time. And the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy and he's talking about leadership in a, in a more mature congregation. The church at, at uh, Crete where Titus was, was a new church. And therefore, necessarily, all were new believers. And so there is, a, there is some slack, there's some room, there's some, some wobble room here with regard to what it means to be a new convert. You notice that Paul doesn't give you a time frame. He doesn't say that he cannot have, have come to faith in Jesus Christ in the last 18 months. He doesn't say that. He just says he cannot be a neophyte. He cannot be a new convert. The older and more established the church is, the more theologically mature the church is, the more, the, the deeper the maturity must be of its leadership. The newer a congregation is, the, the, there is a necessarily leadership that is less mature. That doesn't mean that, that they can be immature, but it means that they are less mature than one in an older church. What that means in a practical sense is that one who might qualify to be an elder in one church would not be qualified to serve in another. It depends upon the maturity level of the church. 
So he must not be a neophyte, not a new convert. Why? Take a look here at verse 6. Why? Lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. There are really two reasons here. One is the, is the issue of conceit. If you are thrown into leadership prematurely, you run the risk of being enamored with the power and authority of the office and being blown up, puffed up, falling into conceit. It is a serious thing to stand before the people of God. It can feed your ego if you are not careful. The accolades that will come to you can feed the flesh and cause you to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And so it is a distinct danger and therefore one who is new should avoid it. Also, he talks about falling into condemnation. You fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. What was the devil's seminal sin? What is it that led him to his fall? It was pride. It was pride. He wanted to be like God. I will make myself like the Most High, he says. And Satan fell. And so there is, for the newly planted Christian, there is this danger. I can illustrate this for you from something from my own past many years ago. We were in a church in, uh, in Texas, and uh, there was a man on the elder board who was a novice. He was a very successful businessman. He had a very outgoing personality. And he appeared after he came to faith late in life to, to rapidly develop a, a good understanding of the Bible. And so they moved him into, elder, into eldership, and they elevated him too quickly. And later on down the road, there was, a, there was a major dispute came up within the elder board, and he got his feelings hurt. And when he got his feelings hurt, he, he left the church. He just walked away from it all. He ended up at another church for a while, and subsequently I heard that he had left the church altogether, that he had lapsed from his confession of faith in Christ. And I believe it all had to do with the fact that he had, they had elevated this successful man to quickly into the leadership of the church. He had become conceited and he fall into the condemnation of the devil. It's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing to put the son of Adam into a place of authority, the church of God. Lastly, in terms of his qualifications, it is with regard to his fame. Verse 7, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so they may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Notice the uh, repetition here, by the way, of the verb that he must have a good reputation. This is not negotiable. I don't know if Paul puts this in here because he thinks by this time we've forgotten that everything else is a, is a must-have as well. But he repeats it here for us. This is a must-have. This is not, again, you can't, it's not like the California you know, driver's license test. You can't get 16 out of 20 right and get your license. You've got to get it all. And here it's a must-have. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. An elder must be able not only to pass muster inside the church, he must pass muster outside the church. Outside the church. What the unbeliever thinks of him can have everything in the world to do with whether he's qualified or disqualified. He must have that kind of a reputation. A good reputation with the lost. Why? So that he does not fall into reproach, he says, right? Verse 7 so that he may not fall into reproach. That is, that he may not stumble and bring disgrace upon the church of Jesus Christ. How many times have you heard an unbeliever say, 
about such and such a person when they fall from a position of leadership. They're no better than I am. At least I'm an honest sinner. I admit that I'm a sinner. I don't try to put on airs that I'm somehow a, a spiritual person. And look at that fraud. When a man falls from leadership, it brings tremendous reproach upon the church of Jesus Christ. Beyond that, it is the snare of the devil. It is a trap that has been laid at your feet, gentlemen. As you walk through life, understand that you have a bullseye on your forehead. And Satan himself has painted it there. He wants to trip you up. He wants you to fall. He wants you to stumble. He wants you to live a life that is a contradiction to that which you profess because he wants to destroy the church. He will do everything in his power to try to get you to fall. Pray for your elders, beloved. Pray for them. Satan has a bullseye on their forehead. He is looking to cause them to fall. He must have a good reputation, verse 7, with those outside the church. By the way, lest we think that that's only the elder's responsibility, the Scripture is replete with statements about the importance of the reputation outside the church that each and every one of us have. It is not just the elders that have to have a good reputation outside the church. It is all of us that have to have a good reputation outside the church. This, own, this same book here, chapter 5, for example, in verse 14. Paul says there, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Chapter 6, verse 1, Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. Titus, chapter 2, we'll just look at a few of these. Titus chapter 2 and verse 5. The older women and teach the younger women to love their husbands, love their children. Verse 5, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Why? So that the word of God may not be dishonored. Verse 8, sound in speech, which is above reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Verse 10, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Chapter 3, verse 2. Malign no one, be uncontentious, gentle, showing consideration or every consideration for all men. On and on and on, beloved, I could give you multiplied references to the fact that the reputation of you is significant to the gospel. I was having lunch this week and talking with a friend of mine and we were discussing this very same issue. We were talking about the fact that when we present the gospel many times to people, it is not easily or readily received because the lifestyle of those who claim allegiance to Jesus Christ is so contradictory to the message that we're talking about, that their lives undo everything that's being spoken. There are many who profess Jesus Christ who would do well to keep their mouths shut if they cannot clean up their lives. Because they are a living and walking and breathing disadvertisement for what it means to follow Christ. It is huge, it is significant that we live according to the gospel which we profess and proclaim. Now having said that, no one by their godliness will ever convert anyone. It is the gospel, it is the power of God under salvation. It is not your righteous living that converts someone. 
You might live a stellar life and they will easily redefine it according to their own presuppositions. You must open your mouth. You must speak. But it is your life that creates a platform from which you can speak. Why do you live like you do when someone says that to you? You go, now is my chance to talk about Christ. Now is my opportunity. Beloved, if just living a godly lifestyle would convert someone, then Jesus Christ himself, who lived perfection before the Father, would have converted the world with his lifestyle. Instead, they said that he takes up resonance with sinners, prostitutes, right? It's critical that we live right. It's critical that we preach right. It is a combination of our lives and our oral witness through which we bring people to faith in Christ. But don't miss this. That hypocrisy, verse 7 again, hypocrisy inhibits the spread of the gospel. Those who hate God are looking for a reason. Do not arm their gun for them. Do not put the bullet in the chamber for them. Do not live with hypocrisy. Jesus Christ reserved His harshest words for those who were hypocrites of His own day. His chastisement of the Pharisees, those that looked externally righteous and and did not live in conformity with what they said, were the ones who received His harshest judgment. Well, we've covered a lot of material together these last four weeks. Seven areas of examination. Seven areas. The Apostle Paul says a man must be above reproach in. Not perfect, but mature. Growing and being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ with regard to his fitness, his, his faculty, his fellows, his finances, his family, his fame, or his faith and his fame. Every dimension of his life, every area that can be looked at, from the top, from the bottom, from the sides, inside, outside, it all must add up. It must be a man who, what you see, is what you get. And only then is he qualified to enter a ministry of service to the people of Christ. It is a high and holy privilege. But there is nothing like it. The joy of serving the people of God. Beloved, the opportunity, and I can speak for all of my brother elders, to serve amongst you here as shepherds is a privilege we do not take lightly. Thank you for your trust invested in us. If you are with us this morning for the first time, We've covered a lot of material. We've been speaking about a lot of of things. Some of it is probably new to you, maybe even a little bit confusing. But but before you leave, let me just speak to you just momentarily here this morning directly. It is not by accident that you are here among us. You are here by God's divine appointment. He has brought you here into the midst of these people, of us, a fellowship of believers in Jesus Christ. He's brought you here that we might minister to you the gospel. The gospel is very simple. The gospel says that in the very beginning, when God created the earth, He populated it with a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. He gave them tremendous authority and responsibility and only one prohibition. The prohibition was that they were not to disobey Him in this one particular test. Yet they went ahead and disobeyed Him anyways. And when they disobeyed, they plunged both themselves and their descendants into ruin. 
They were cut off from their fellowship with God. Their relationship with their Creator was severed. And there was a breach formed. And no longer did they desire to love and serve their Creator, but instead they wanted to love and serve themselves. The Bible calls that sin. Each and every one of us as descendants of Adam and Eve have been infected with that deadly disease. It it goes in the very fiber of our being. It, It infiltrates every part of us. It is a death sentence. The Bible says for the wages, that is the payment for sin, is death. We know that all people are sinners because we know that all will die someday. It is a hopeless and a helpless state. But God did not leave us there. God made a way to be reconciled back to Himself. The Creator sent His own Son in the fullness of time, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to earth and lived perfectly before the Father and achieved righteousness with His own life and then then voluntarily died on a cross. That those who by faith would embrace His sacrifice would believe that He died for them and that the righteousness that He earned would be then given to them. When they embrace that truth by faith, the Bible says that they will be saved. That all of the guilt of all of their sin is laid upon Christ on the cross. All of His righteousness is credited to them and they will be reconciled to their Creator. That is the Gospel, beloved. And it is simple. And by faith, even where you are right now, sitting in that pew, you can call out to God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, I believe you died on that cross for me. And I I ask you now to come into my heart and life. I ask you to forgive me for my sin. And I commit myself to following you. If you will, with earnest, pray that prayer and ask for Christ's forgiveness, the Bible says you will be forgiven. You can do that even now. It doesn't require you to come forward. It doesn't require you to sign a card, raise your hand, say a special prayer or anything else. You call out to Christ in your heart. He will hear you. If you have done that or you have other questions that you want to talk, when we finish over this lighted cross, there'll be some folks. They'll be there with the Scriptures. They'll open their Bibles. and They'll talk to you and show you the way of salvation, answer your questions. God bless you. Let's pray. Our Father, the criteria laid out in this text is lofty. Indeed, in, by human strength, it is unattainable. There is none who would qualify. But by the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit, you are at work in our lives. And you have done a great work in many men, enabling them to grow and mature in their faith in Jesus Christ, to grow beyond the elementary stages of simple attachment by faith, and to come to know the deeper things of Christ and you place within their heart a desire to serve His people as elders. I thank You for the elders of this local fellowship. I thank You for the hard work, our Father, that they put in week by week, month by month. I thank You for their love for Christ and their desire to see the lost reached. I pray for their ministry in the year to come that You would strengthen them and enable them to be even more effective in their servant leadership. I pray for other men who are even now being considered to enter into elder training programs and and men perhaps who haven't yet to be even identified that the the aspiration, the desire is, is now just but a seed in their heart and is to grow into full bloom. May you bless them and help them to make decisions that would 
be wise decisions and it would facilitate their ministry as elders. Our Father, we pray as well for those amongst us who have perhaps heard the gospel for the first time today. May you open their eyes to the reality of it all, granting them saving faith in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.